Any questions? All right, we've got a lot of uh, material to cover. And, um, there, how's that? Still there? Okay. And so we're going to begin today with Hellenistic Judaism. And one thing that you're going to note is that from now on, the lectures are going to get a little, there are going to be more of them, and they're going to be smaller. And the reason is, is that um, in order to understand the tradition of Jerusalem, you've got to set the foundation. So we spent the first five weeks of the class setting the foundation. And keep in mind that Jerusalem is the most important city to Jews. It's the <coughs> second most important city to Christians, and it's the third most important city to Islam. So it gets less and less important to the to the subsequent religions. That said, it's still important. Okay, so um, it's not that we don't care about Christianity or we don't care about Islam or we don't care about Buddhism or Hinduism and stuff. It's just it, it gets increasingly important for these subsequent ones. And then, of course, once we get to modern Jerusalem, everyone will yell and scream at each other because everybody's got an opinion on what to do with modern Jerusalem. So it'll, it'll all of a sudden become magically important again. Um, so we'll talk about uh, Hellenistic Jerusalem. We'll probably get through uh, Hasmonean Jerusalem as well today. And then we'll try to get as much as we can on Herodian Jerusalem as well. Okay, any questions? Um, the, we're going to we'll begin talking about the Hellenistic period. Remember, we left off with the Persian period. Uh, the Jews were sent to exile after the destruction of the temple in 586 by the Babylonians. The Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. The Persians said, you guys want to go home? Why don't you go back and rebuild the temple? Okay. And so time comes by, and the Greeks show up. So Hellenism, or Hellenistic, is a big fancy word for Greek. Um, we have some sources, and I'm, I'm as you know, an archaeologist, big, big fan of actually having evidence for things. Um, so we have the Apocrypha, which are those other books that the Catholics say are in the Bible, but Protestants say aren't in the Bible. Books like Maccabees, things like that. Um, and then we also have um, the Roman historian Flavius Josephus. And Josephus is probably one of the most important uh, ancient uh, sources we have for, for stuff that's outside of the Bible. Okay. Um, keep in mind that Josephus likes to exaggerate in times. Josephus uh, oftentimes, I always say, whatever number he gives you, divide by 10. He's, he's, he tends to cheat a little bit on the numbers. Josephus tends to cheat a little bit, exaggerate on his numbers. He also writes from a Roman point of view, even though he's Jewish, right? Because he was a, a Jewish general in the army, and he was captured. Uh, and right when they were getting ready to kill him, actually he entered into a suicide pact. So he says, all right, we, won't, we don't want to be taken alive, so we'll draw 10 lots, and those 10 people will kill everyone else, and they did that. And they said, all right, we'll draw one lot, and that person will kill the other nine. And so he did that, and then Josephus didn't kill himself. And he got captured, and right when the Romans came in to capture him, he said, well, wait, I'm not a general, I'm a prophet. I think you're going to be the emperor. And sure enough, that Roman general became the emperor. And they said, well, I like this Josephus guy. <laughs> so they brought him over and they put him on the payroll. And they said, why don't you write a history of your people? Just remember who you're working for. And so Josephus writes histories, but he's often very favorable towards the Romans. And, not, and, and still tells the Jewish history. He always has this, you always have to verify, just like any source, including me. Okay? Any, any professor that stands up in front of you is going to try to, if they're any good, give all the material as objectively as possible. Any news agency, if they're any good, is going to give the material as objectively as possible. But many would argue there's no such thing as pure objectivity. So you always have to question the sources and the motives of everyone who tells you anything, which is why I like to rely on evidence. And I'll be 
very honest with you. We have evidence or don't have evidence. So scholars like to question Josephus every once in a while because was he saying that because he works for the Romans, or was he saying that because he's Jewish, or was he saying that because it's true? Not to mean that those things are mutually exclusive, but that's what we deal with. Um, the word Palestine, this is, a, this is a fun one. The word Palestine is actually derived from the Greek translation of the word Philistine. Remember the Philistines? The Sea People, the, the Mycenaean folks who came over as a part of the Sea Peoples and landed in what is today the Gaza Strip. So the Romans just called, well, this is where the Philistines, and some uh, kind of think that the reasons the Romans wanted to call that area Palestine was because the Jews were there. So they said, well, why don't we name it after the, your traditional arch nemesis? Now, whether that's true or not, we don't know. But the area became Palestine, or it was called in that time Palestine, and, and still today, Palestinians live there, and, and uh, there's parts of this area that some people argue all of it's still Palestine, some people say none of it's Palestine. Somewhere in between, we have what we have today, Israel and Palestine together. Um, but uh, it's actually from the word Philistine. Philistine, so that's what we're, and we refer to it as Palestine because that's what the Romans called it during this period. All right, now who's this guy? All right, here's different, uh, different uh, reproductions of him. We actually have mosaics of Alexander the Great. And you've got, uh, what's this actor's name? Colin Farrell. Colin Farrell, yeah. Uh, and then you have uh, statues of them, busts of them, uh, friezes, reliefs of them, uh, and then coins. And just so that you know, all coins are forms of propaganda. And coins are little mini pieces of propaganda. They're, they're measured and stamped and they're worth a certain amount. But you always put things on coins, even, even we do this, right, to kind of say certain things. So if you look at the U.S. dollars, and it works with paper money, they don't do paper money back then. You know, what, what's on our money? Right, eagles. Many argue the old Roman eagle. Right, we have eagles on our quarters, kind of like symbols of power and freedom. We have what? Pyramids. Pyramids. Yeah. Okay. If you're conspiracy theorists, right? We have uh, <laughs> the eyes and the masons and all that stuff. Okay. Maybe we have pyramids, right? Longevity, stability. The pyramids are still there, right? We have um, what? What else? Pictures of presidents to kind of show, look, we're based on uh, laws. We have to put this long history of people, right? And you use it. We put things on them like what? One nation under all or one nation under God. E pluribus unum, right? Out of many, one. We put these models in things because we're trying to communicate messages when we can. It's, it's free advertising. That We didn't invent that, right? We're not the ones that did that first. It's been going on for years. Here's a picture of Alexander. And you see here, coming out of Alexander's head, is a horn. A horn is the sign in the ancient world of strength. And he's depicting himself as the god Zeus. So if you're going to mint a coin, you might as well mint a coin of your, you know, like George Washington with a horn coming out of it, right? There's a very famous painting of Moses that's got horns coming out. Because at one point in the Bible, it said Moses had horns. So somebody literally interpreted that and drew Moses with horns. Horns work is, uh, is in biblical language oftentimes a symbol for uh, strength, Just like eyes are one for ubiquitousness or wisdom, lots of eyes, right? Um, anyways, let's talk about Alexander the Great. Um, he conquered basically the known world, right? Not really the known world, but what we, what we consider in Western civilization being the known Western world. And that includes all the way out to uh, you know, basically India. If you know your history of the Hellenistic period, 
basically what we know today is uh, Iran and Iraq and um, north of the desert, right, the Fertile Crescent, all the way up in uh, Turkey, and then obviously Greece, where he's from. He came down and took some of Egypt. In fact, one historian said that Alexander the Great, I think it was by the time he was 30 or 33 years old, wept because there was nothing left to conquer. <laughs> and that's, that's, what, I mean, that's what you did back in the day, right? You just like, conquered everything. So his conquest, his great conquest, included the conquest of Palestine in 332 BCE. Okay, so the Greeks have arrived. The Greeks have arrived in Palestine. Now, um, just as a recap, in the early Persian period, which is the late 6th century, we talked about that last week, right? It's one world, the Davidic governors, alongside a high priest. So the, the Davidic monarch, even though the, in one place the Bible argues that the new Persian governor is actually a descendant of David, which is one way to conditionalize that promise, right? Remember God made a promise and then the Davidic monarchy goes away? Well, one of the ways that you can make that promise is, well, the Persian governor is actually a son of David, so technically they're still the kingdom. Okay, whatever. <laughs> but, but there it is. So, but you have this, this dichotomy, right? You had a Persian-appointed ruler, and then you had a high priest. In the middle Persian period, you had Ezra the priest arrives and begins to redefine this Jewish community. Um, and then you have the late Persian period, um, where the Jewish revolt uh, against the Persian period, about 340 BCE, and you begin to see coins minted and say, Yohanan the priest. Wow. Again, we said that coins are a form of propaganda. So anytime you see somebody minting their own coins, that's a claim of authority, right? If we here at UCLA just decided one day, we're going to start printing UCLA money. We're just going to use it in Westwood, and we're going to, in fact, we'll, we'll let anybody use it, and we'll be like, that's a claim of authority, right? The U.S. government won't like that. And then we're talking about now the Hellenistic period, where the high priest now oversees essentially everything, at least everything Jewish. So he has an oversees a little bit of religious and administrative affairs. So we see this uh, transition, if you will, from the administrative, the king, to the high priest. And it's one of the one of the signs of this period is the high priest kind of becomes the the uh, administrative leader as well. And again, this is all on the course website. You can print it out and download it if you miss something. Okay. So the priests are also uh, taking over some of the secular or administrative leadership. Um, so. What's the history, of a brief synopsis of the history? Alexander the Great de defeats Persia's King Darius at the Battle of Issus in 333 BCE. Famous battle, you should know this one. Okay. So the Persians who controlled everything for a long, long time. Now the Persians don't go away, but Alexander's beaten them, right? Um, and then Jerusalem uh, eventually gives up and, uh, to Alexander, and Josephus talks about this. And I'm not gonna ask you what does Josephus 11, 8, you know, say. Just know that some of the books he wrote, one of them is called The Antiquities of the Jews. Uh, Josephus also uh, wrote a book about the wars of the Jews, or the Jewish wars. And then, of course, like every single person on earth who loves himself, he wrote a biography, The Life of Flavius Josephus, in which he depicts himself as Joseph. A lot of the things, uh, uh, one of my mentors, one of my teachers, uh, makes the point that 
when we see Josephus talk about himself, he's oftentimes echoing biblical stories about uh, Joseph, the biblical character Joseph. He's just trying to do some of the things that Joseph did. Um, anyways, um, he shows that uh, Alexander dies in 323, and upon his death, his kingdom was so big, and nobody was as magnanimous as uh, Alexander, his kingdom was split up into four regions under four of his generals. Okay? And the two that concern us are Egypt, remember where's our map here? Hang on, I'll come back to it. I'll come back to it. The two that concern us are this region here, Egypt, on the southern end of modern day Israel, Palestine, and what we call Syria, the northern end of Israel, Palestine. Okay? So the two that concern us. Now, the Egyptians uh, were, were taken over in that region, that southern region was taken over by Ptolemy. Ptolemy, Ptolemy, like Pterodactyl, right? <coughs> Uh, by Ptolemy, and he captured Jerusalem in 320 BCE. Whereas um, Seleucus was down in the um, in the in, in Egypt, in that southern pardon me, I was up in Syria, and he's up in the northern part. So you've got Ptolemy in Egypt, and the Seleucids ruling, or the descendants of, uh, of the Seleucids ruling from the north. Okay? Egypt had control first. They took Palestine in 320 BCE. And and uh, Antiochus III, one of the Seleucids, uh, defeats the Ptolemies in 201. There's a famous battle in like 198 at the place I very first, my very first archaeological dig, at a place that's modern day called Banias, up in the north. Uh, it's in the Golan Heights between uh, uh, Lebanon and Israel and, and uh, Syria. That's um, Panaeus. It's named after the god Pan. So it's Panion or Peneus. Anyways, there's a very famous battle there, and the Seleucids, the Syrians, take control of Israel Palestine from um, the Ptolemies. Good question. Um, going back to Josephus, uh, uh, when you said he credited the himself as Joseph, yeah. Joseph, do you mean? Biblical Joseph, like patriarch, old, old Joseph. Like Jacobson, Joseph. Yes, yeah. Like coat of many colors, Joseph. Josephus, I want you to know the Ptolemies came out of Egypt and the Seleucids were out of Syria. Okay? So let's look at the Ptolemies first. Everybody have this? Let's look at the Ptolemies first. They existed. They made coins, right? They gave them great, uh, them, uh, they gave themselves great names. Like Soter, what's Soter mean in Greek? Ptolemy wants Soter. What's soteriology? Anyone in the back? Savior. He named himself Ptolemy I the Savior. That's his nickname, the Savior. Right. What's an epiphany? Right, when you have this, well, we said, if I had an epiphany, I have this great idea, this idea. So they have some great names. You see the eagles, you see the bus, it's kind of the same idea. Um, <coughs> The Ptolemies took control uh, of Palestine about 300 and kept it for about 100 years. So they're ruling out of Egypt. And during this period, Jerusalem was given pretty much a its own its own rule. Right? Just be loyal, don't rebel. Uh, we'll let you do your own thing. In fact, the Jews can choose their own high priest. So they're basically given their own control over, over their self-government. 
Um, and Josephus Antiquities 12 um, talks about this. Questions? The Seleucids come along, right, and in 198 BC defeat Ptolemy V at Plataeus or at Panaeus in 198 BC. And here you see all the, the Seleucid kings. And the one that we're going to focus the most on is Antiochus III, Antiochus the Great. When the Seleucids begin to rule in Jerusalem, they advocate strongly for Hellenism. Hellenism, which is, among other things, to speak Greek. Okay? Uh, and they aggressively Hellenize the Jews. And we'll talk in a minute about what Hellenization is. And the idea is that we want linguistic unity right, for an imperial purity or for uh, imperial unity. Now, where else did we see this happen, where they used language to kind of consolidate everybody under one language? Yeah, the Assyrians switched from Akkadian to Aramaic because right, it was easier. These guys are going to come and bring democracy, not, not democracy, yeah, pardon me. These guys are going to come and bring Greek, the Greek language, they're going to bring the Greek ethos, the Greek ethic, Greek religion, Greek everything, to all the people that they conquer and civilize them. And I use that word in quotes. They're going to make the world more civilized, less barbaric, because they're not just conquerors, they're educators, right? We're coming to bring you something better than what you've got. <coughs> Has anybody heard this before, by the way? Anybody heard any, any, anybody else doing this? George Bush. Yeah. <laughs> George Bush up there, yeah. The colonization? Yeah, colonization. Most imperial peoples do this, right? Those, are, those people are, they're savages, or they're uneducated, or they don't have the right religion. We'll, we'll take, we're not going to conquer them. We're going we're gonna to show them a better way. Okay? Like V, right? Those of you who watch V. Yeah. Okay. So basically, we're going to show you something better. Okay, so don't see us as barbaric colonizers who are coming out to get you. We're, we're just trying to improve your life. And this same argument is made every time one country invades another to liberate them. So the Seleucids. Now, one of the things I want to do is not only bring the Greek language, but instill this idea of the Greek polis. Polis being a word for city. Your words like politics or Minneapolis, right? Metropolis. And they regarded the city as kind of the highest manifestation of, of civility, of the civil institution. In fact, Aristotle said um, he lists the essential characteristics of a polis as a food supply, necessary skills and crafts, and craft specialization, military supplies, commerce, religion, and a system of justice. Right? So you've got your judicial, you've got your defense, you've got industrial, right? You've got economics. You've got humanities with your religion, and that's what makes a good civil society. 500 years later, we see a similar list. It's defined by a municipal office, a gymnasium, right, which is not like our modern-day gymnasiums, but it's, it's, uh, <coughs> it is where you would go and learn and do things, uh, often naked. Yeah. A theater, an agora, right, kind of an open marketplace, and a public water supply. So the idea is that the polis, those who live in cities, are industrialized. They're so part of they're civilized. Right? They, it's, it's the evolved class, right? Which doesn't usually play well if you're in a red state or if you're a farmer or if you're, you know, I think we did this poll here before. I'm one of three people that grew up in a farm town. 
Right? We don't like cities. Cities is where, where do you go when you want to commit a lot of sin? You go to Vegas, right? You, you go to a city. You go, that's where all the stuff is. You don't go to Podunk, wherever. You know, you don't go to Fresno. Yeah, I really want. I really want to do a lot of stuff. Let's go to Fresno, right? People go to Fresno. People live in Fresno so they can go to other places, right? Like Yosemite and Morro Bay. Now, I'm not saying that Fresno is perfect. We have our own problems. But, uh, what I'm saying is, people from Fresno, people from small country towns. Fresno's a big city now, by the way. But, but people from the country, they look at the city as like, well, I don't want to go there. It's all kinds of weird stuff. Whereas people who live in New York City, kind of do what? Or San Francisco, they're like, well. In the city. I, I drive a hybrid and I drink espressos. <laughs> right? I, I, I recycle things. I, I go to art things. <laughs> Exhibition. I go to the museum. Because we're civilized. We're both. And what, you're, what, what I'm setting up here is a, is a class war. Another one. Another class war. Um, political uncertainty in Jerusalem attracts. Um, different social experiments, if you will, or e economic experiments, okay? And we talked about the gymnasium, the theater, kind of public places where you can go and see new things, right? Where you can learn new ideas. The Agora, for instance, you go out. The Agora wasn't just, I live in, you know, I live in Agora, but it's the same word, right? Agora Hills. Um, it's not just the idea of a market, but it's the market where you, it's like Third Street Promenade. Yeah, you can shop there, but it's also where you go to see things. You don't have this in small farm towns, right? You know, you have some drunk guy riding the oil well. But that's, that's okay, you stand there and watch it for a second. You guys haven't seen that? Okay. Um, you, you, you know, you go to Spur Street, and I remember the first time I went to Spur Street, I didn't know places like this existed. I was like, wow, there's like 13 shows, and I can buy anything I want, and I can eat anything I want, and I can probably get anything I want, right? It's, it's the city, okay? Um, and we'll look at we'll look at some of the archaeological remains in just a second. What I want you to know, not just for your exam, but what I want you to know is that what it means to Hellenize is to, to affect every single aspect of your culture. It's not just bringing in a new political system or a new religion, right? It's architecture, it's art. Coins. It's your very education, right? It's this liberal attempt to be objective or scientific, maybe not yet at that time to the extent that we have today. Um, the, the plates that you use have to be you know, proper. Brand names become a big deal. Your language has changed. Your literature that you read uh, has changed. Philosophy, recreation, religion, the way you speak, not just the language, but the manner in which you speak changes every single thing about what it means to be in the humanities, right? Everything to be human, to have a culture, changes. And some people don't like this. And some people welcome it, right? How many of you would consider yourselves pretty farmhouse to be from small towns? Okay, so a little under half of you. And now you're in UCLA, and what do you think about it? Now you're in Los Angeles? Some of you are like, yes, right? I finally, I finally arrived, but I finally got to a big place where I can do things. And I got out of that small town. Some of you are what? I kind of like home. Right? It's, it's the difference. It's that same thing. Imagine if everything that you knew about your way of life, your language, everything, just changed. It causes problems. Now, let me give you some examples, enough of me talking. This is the Kidron Valley. Remember the Kidron Valley? This is Jerusalem, right? And these are Jewish tombs. B'nai Hazir, right? Zechariah. But what do they look? 
they look Greek. I see columns, I see capitals, right? So these are Jewish tombs in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, but are now Greek. How about this? The tomb of Absalom, the legendary tomb of Absalom. Remember Absalom, one of David's sons? Looks Greek to me, right? In, in the Kidron Valley. Here's the tomb of Zechariah again. Looks Greek. How about this? Jewish burial inscriptions. If there's one place where you can retain who you are and be who you want to be, it's on your tombstone, right? Here's a Jewish burial inscription. We know they're Jewish because we see the menorah and we see um, we see pomegranates um, and the shofar, cornucopia type, you know, this, this thing that we see. Um, we see uh, palm branches. But what do we notice about these? We know that they're Jewish. What do we notice? Well, one on the upper left there is written in, well, all three written in Greek, right? One on the right's written in Greek. This one even has a Greek name, Aster. We get the word asteroid from it. It's like the star, but it's kind of the god. Remember they used to think that gods were stars, stars were gods. So now they're taking on Greek names in Greek on their Jewish burial inscriptions. Everything's changing. Here's one of my favorite, here's one of my favorite little places. This is a place called Sepphoris, Sephori, up in the north, north of Jerusalem. And um, this is a, a Jewish home. And in the center, they have a triclinium. You guys know what triclinium is on? You don't have dining room tables. Uh, what you had was a room on three sides, and you had a couch. And everybody lay, everybody lay on their left side. Everybody was right-handed in the ancient world. You're supposed to be going to eat. Okay, so on three sides you have a room, and then what you do is you, please hold me, you lie down like this, and then you eat. You have the food here, and you eat like this, and this is how you eat. And if you read your Bible, if you read, especially in Luke's account, uh, it always says they went to the table and reclined, and they reclined at the table to eat. I did that to my mom once. I was lying down on the table, I was kind of lying down there, and she said, sit up. I said, but the Bible says Jesus, and I, did, I got about that far before she slapped me. <laughs> the idea was, you know, I said I can do it, I should be able to do it. No, but they did. They, they would lay around the edge, and then the servants would come and bring the food on the inside. And then there was, there was places of honor where you could see everyone. And then there were not so good places where they had feet in your face. And, but, that, but that's how it worked. Okay, so this, is a, this is, would be the centerpiece on the floor of the triclinium. See it? I'm going to kill one of the light, because I don't want you to miss this. And you don't need to see me, because I'm done doing illustrations. Now, do you see it a little better? At the head, we have what we call the Mona Lisa of the Middle East, right? We have this beautiful, beautiful woman depicted with a long neck eyes. And this is a mosaic. A bunch of little pieces of um, tile that are used to make a piece of art in the ground, mosaic, right? And so here's the first panel. And what, what happens is each of these panels tells a story. And it tells a story about eating and drinking. Greek needles were broken into two parts. Okay? The dipnon, the D-E-I-P-O-N, uh, where you ate. And then the symposium, where you sat around and drank, or philosophized, or discussed the Torah. 
right? You, you did things, and so you had the eating part of your meal, and then you had the active part of your meal. And we get the word symposium from that, where you, where you talk about philosophy or about religion or whatever it is. Um, and we have other mosaics, we have other ones of these, where um, you know, if you weren't into the more cultured, higher things about philosophy or religion, what you would do is you would just have a drinking contest. You would just drink. And that's when they'd bring out the dancing girls or the dancing boys or both. And you could have your way with the, the people who would come out. There's a great story in the New Testament about uh, Jesus being at a dinner. And then after they're eating, this woman comes up and kind of sits behind him at his feet, right? They're kind of down there and, and is washing her his feet with her hair. She got her head down there. And, and the people are looking at him going, are you kidding me? This, we're, we're Jews. We don't, this isn't a pagan orgy. And then Jesus goes on and teaches them a lesson about what to think about people. But anyways, they were right to be outraged because that's the part of the dinner when you bring out the whoever might come to entertain you in whatever form. Okay? So you have these great parties. In fact, we have one with a mosaic that was just stained purple in the center. And what we know uh, from testing the purple stain is that we knew about a drinking contest. They would drink everything in their goblet until the last drop. They would swirl it and try to toss it, kind of like you guys play quarters today. They would try to toss that last drop into the spot in the middle. And then whoever is closest wins, I guess the winner gets to drink or something. But, but that's what we, so we have this. These are places were famous for drinking. Let me show you how else we know that. Okay. Um, each panel of this mosaic is a different scene of a classic mythical drinking contest, okay? So here we're going to bring in all the participants. We've got the satyrs, right? We got all, they're bringing all the grapes. Anytime you see guys with grapes growing in their hair, it's going to be some kind of drinking, uh, drinking contest. Now, who is this drinking contest between? It's between the strongest man on the earth, Heracles, Heracles, right? Hercules. And it's cut off, but it's Dionysus. Who's Dionysus? Also known as Bacchus, yeah, the god of wine, the god of drinking, right? Uh, one of the most popularly worshipped gods on college campuses. I learned. I didn't know that. They <laughs> worship Dionysus by drinking a lot, right? So there's going to be a drinking contest, and as you can see here, Heracles is over here, still trying to drink out of the straw. Sometimes they drink out of straw, and play their flutes and do all these things. And then um, Dionysus has already got it turned upside down. But yeah, this is, this is, I'm the god of wine. I can do this, right? So he's drinking, and he's kind of like turning your shot glass upside down, so I'm told. <laughs> and then finally, you get the last scene where here's Heracles, and he's kind of got his head. Somebody's holding up his head, and they've got a bucket, and stuff's running out of the bucket. He's puking into this bucket, and you get the word methe, drunk. Right, so here's a, and this is like your dining room set, right? This is the middle of your dining room. There's this classic depiction of a, a drinking. So you can tell that these triclinians, these, these dining halls where you ate, were places of frivolity and eating and drinking. This is a Jewish home, and yet it's got a Greek mythological sequence ornately displayed on its floor. That's Hellenization. That's Hellenization. There's, there's a picture of Dionysus from the Getty uh, right there. Um, at Bet Sha'an, at Bet Sha'an, over by the, the Dead Sea, we see Greek gods depicted on everything. We see Greek architecture everywhere. At Ben Shan, we have this other famous mosaic of Tyche. Tyche is the, the, the god of a city, city goddess. You can always tell Tyche because her crown 
uh, looks like the walls of a city with the, with the crenellations and turrets and all that stuff. How bad did it get, or how good did it get, depending on what point of view you are? This is a, the Bet Alpha Synagogue. This is a Jewish house of worship, and in the center of it you get a zodiac mosaic. So now you've got Greek astrological things in the center of your synagogues. Right? And you can see all the signs, right? Here's Versa, here's your, here's your bears, and your Pisces, your fish. Who's the archer? I don't know, I don't follow astronomy or astrology.
Let, let's translate it, but let's make it so that it's explicit what's being said. And so this, this accounts for the differences. But anyways, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. It'll be on your exam. Make sure you know that. Question? Answer it. Okay. The Seleucids, right? Um, we're talking about them. We're talking about the, the Hellenization, the forced Hellenization that they brought to Jerusalem. Antiochus III and Antiochus the Great took control of Palestine from the Ptolemies, and he resisted the Zadokite high priest, Onias III. Whoops. Okay? So there was a high priest in place, but he wouldn't let them rule themselves. He wouldn't let them have complete control, sovereignty over their own religious affairs. He wanted to step in and, and do things his own way. Or have that priest, you know, uh, answer to him a little bit. Take take orders, if you will. Okay? And the Ptolemies kind of said, yeah, you guys do what you want, just pay your taxes and don't be bold. Seleucids were trying to gain direct control and Hellenize you guys. After him, Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes came and this guy was brutal. He thoroughly Hellenized Palestine and Jerusalem. So he deposed the high priest and he sold it to the high priest's brother, Jason, in 175. He basically went to the high priest's brother and he says, how'd you like to be high priest? I can make you high priest instead of your brother, because your brother's not really wanting to be a team player. I'm the, I'm the king and your brother's resisting some of the things I want. Separation of powers type thing. How would you like to be high priest? I'll make you high priest if you, you know, you do what I ask you to do, when I ask you to do it. Okay, so he sells it to him. Deposes the high priest. Jason uh, starts putting these gymnasia in Jerusalem. And then as soon as Jason doesn't do something that Antiochus IV wants, he sells it again to Menelaus in 172 BCE. Why do I tell you this? When we talk about thoroughly Hellenizing the Jews, it's not just changing their Bible, changing their religion, changing their culture. He's now beginning to meddle with the high priesthood. And remember, you don't have kings anymore. The Davidic monarchy, the Davidic, Davidic ruler is gone. These guys are now in control. So the other branch of government, the high priesthood, kind of assumes all that secular administrative power. And now that's being meddled with. And if you're a religious person, of the, of the Jewish faith at this time period, we don't like this. You already got rid of our king, and now you're trying to screw with our religion? Okay. Got this? <coughs> yes? What did their name make in the priesthood? They usually, especially these guys who are, uh, some will look at it and say, some priests welcomed Hellenization, they liked it. They didn't like being back, considered backwards. They wanted to be modern and hip and do all the cool stuff. So they would take on great names. And we talked about already, a lot of times in periods of great transition, you take on a new name. Uh, a lot of Catholics, when they're baptized, will take on a baptismal name. Sometimes you, something happens in here, you take on a nickname. Things like that. These guys would often take on great names. So a lot of these Jewish priests actually have great names. Or two names. They'll have like Judah and then Jason or something. Oh, it's one of the things he wanted he wanted to do. Maybe he was told to do it, but he, he did it, and then people don't like that. 
So basically what you're seeing is all this urbanization, all this foreign culture, the superior occupying people are trying to push the culture. They're pushing, they're pushing a new agenda, do something new, do something great. And over time, people are just, you get fed up with that. When we're seeing that these days, now it's not to that extent, but as soon as you get a different president or a change of power, and he's trying to push something new, especially if it's something that people consider to be either in the wrong direction religiously or in the wrong direction economically, you start to get these little mini protests, right? People just, they're tired of being pushed a certain direction. They don't want to change their ways, let's put it that way. So you've seen some of that in Greek now. They're used to having a certain economic policy, and now they're, they're in debt, so they're cutting all their, their spending, and people are protesting, right? They change their way of life. Or here you see the Tea Party folks running around doing their thing, right? Um, they, they don't like the way things are going, so they, they start to rebel. At what point does it become violent? At what point does it become, well, we'll see. I meant the anti-intelligence. No, no, I think that's part of him coming in. Okay. Part of him coming in. Again, as we'll see, some of these guys accepted Hellenism, some of them resisted it. And the ones that resisted are usually deposed. So, what specifically did Antiochus IV do? He went off to attack Egypt in 170 BCE, but he heard rumors that the, that the Jews were in revolt. While he was out of town, right, while the cat was away, the mice were going to play, and they were going to try to revolt. And he says, enough of this, I don't do that. So they're going to run back, he, he comes back to Jerusalem, and he loots the temple treasure. Keep in mind that the Jerusalem temple was also kind of the central bank, where they kept a lot of gold and silver, a lot of uh, commerce uh, was around there. So he looted the temple treasury. Remember, everybody was required to pay a, a tax to the temple, all the Jews. Well, he just went in and took that tax money away from the priests and took it himself. And so he looted the temple treasury. It's like robbing a church. Right? Never happened. Never, never a happy thing. Right? Um, in 167 BCE, he, he uh, created an edict that outlawed Jewish religious practices, which he considered to be barbaric. And one in particular. Circumcision. What kind of, I mean, this, was, this would be Antiochus IV speaking, what kind of barbaric people mutilate the, their children upon birth? Right? Who does that? So, no more of this. Now, keep in mind, that was the one thing that made you Jewish. That was the one sign. Remember the promise to Abraham? You will circumcise every male child. That was kind of what made you Jewish, at least uh, uh, superficially. And now he's outlawing that. So now you're going to have a period of a bunch of Jews who aren't circumcised. So they're trying to get rid of the religion. You loot the temple treasury, you try to weaken the temple, the priesthood, you ban um, religious holidays, you ban worship at the temple. And then just to make sure, just to make sure that nobody wanted to go to the temple and worship, he went into the temple and sacrificed a pig. Now what do we know about pigs and kosher eating? You don't eat pork, right? If you're Jewish, you're not supposed to. Not kosher. So he goes in there on the temple in Jerusalem and sacrifices a pig to a pagan god. So now you're worshiping another god. You're sacrificing a pig. Everything is defiled. And he's like, anybody got anything to say? Anybody? Okay. We know who's boss now? Okay. okay. And then he converted the temple into a temple to Zeus. So no more temple in Jerusalem to Yahweh. It's now a great temple to Zeus. Now, if you weren't already upset, and you were a religious fundamentalist, or you were a conservative, now you're boiling. Now your blood is just boiling, 
And this guy, he took away our king, and now he's taken away our religion. Got all this? The things that Antiochus IV did? Now, the reaction to this was, was, uh, was as you would expect. Um, some people welcomed colonization. They liked the advancement. You know, sometimes you go overseas. How I many of you have traveled overseas? My hands. Okay, so most of you travel overseas. You go overseas and you go, oh, this is a neat place, a neat idea. I like this place. I think I want to come back here again. And other times you go back there and you say, wow, this, is, this isn't very nice. I think I want to go home. And so sometimes you welcome new ideas and sometimes you reject them. Uh, and the same is true here. Some Jews welcomed it. Some Jews didn't like it at all. Some Jewish priests cooperated, as we saw with the building of the gymnasium, with uh, promoting Hellenism, and some didn't. Okay? Some Jews did abandon uh, the, the idea of circumcision. Leave this up. We'll talk about this a little later. We'll talk about the fighting between. There's a way to reverse a circumcision, circumcision, and it's not just a modern thing back in the It's called a heavy spasm, and it involves stretching. And they were doing it, right? That, that's later. That's, we'll, we'll talk about this in a second. Anyways, they got rid of circumcision. Jews getting rid of circumcision. And then Jewish infighting became intense. So not only are they oppressed by the Greeks, the foreigners, but they're looking around at other Jews who were supporting the Greeks and the, the Greeks and they began to fight with them. And all of this was just a time bomb. It was just growing and growing and growing. And it ultimately led to a revolt. Any questions about the Greek period, Hellenistic period. 